Welcome to episode 78 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, we have Diana Fernandez and Faisal Bin Siraj. Diana is the Deputy Country Representative for the Asia Foundation in Myanmar, and Faisal is the Asia Foundation's Country Representative in Bangladesh. Myanmar and Bangladesh, like all countries, have been hit by COVID-19. At this stage, the economic impacts are outweighing the health impacts, despite both countries having fragile health systems. Diana and I discuss Myanmar's economic dependence on China and how this has impacted on Myanmar's response to COVID-19, including the closure of their borders, along with the emergence of Chinese NGOs. We discuss why Myanmar's healthcare system is ranked as one of the worst in the world and why the Ministry of Health recognises that it cannot cope with a COVID-19 outbreak. We also discuss the internet blackout occurring in Myanmar as revealed by a private telecommunications provider, Telenor, who was ordered by the Ministry of Information in Myanmar to switch off some of their internet towers. The blackout has made the coordination of aid to parts of Myanmar difficult and speaks to broader concerns about the freedom of the media and the spread of critical information. Faisal and I discuss why the growth rate of COVID-19 infections in Bangladesh has been higher than other Asian countries, but also how Cox's Bazaar and the large refugee camp at Houses have managed to emerge with no confirmed cases. However, since the time of recording, two Rohingya refugees have tested positive for COVID-19 in Cox's Bazaar. Faisal and I also discuss the low-cost test kits that have been distributed in Bangladesh and whether their reliability is a problem. Like Myanmar, there are also restrictions on internet access and media freedoms in Bangladesh, which we discuss. Lastly, we discuss the stimulus package announced by the Bangladesh government and whether it is enough to protect precarious informal sector workers, as well as the garment manufacturing sector, who have been hit hard by international brands cancelling their orders. You can find out more about the Asia Foundation via the link in our show notes. You can also find more coverage of COVID-19 impacts in Asia via the Dev Policy blog at devpolicy.org. Recently, Diana, Faisal and other staff from the Asia Foundation wrote an article for Dev Policy on women's safety in Asia. It's an important read and we've included a link in the show notes. Other articles contributed by the Asia Foundation staff on Dev Policy cover the impact and response to COVID-19 in Vietnam, Laos and Malaysia. Enjoy the episode with Diana Fernandez and Faisal Bin Siraj. Diana, thanks for speaking with me. To start with, what's the latest on COVID-19 in Myanmar? We are, as of today, at 180 cases, and that's out of a population of 54 million. So a lot of questions arising as to why such a small number. Um, A lot of it, a lot of the speculation around limited testing facilities, you know, just a variety of questions in a lot of the countries where Asia Foundation works on, you know, maybe small numbers of cases. For example, our colleagues in Laos have also seen very small numbers of cases. So, you know, speculations can run wild, but as of today, 180 cases. What are the main sources of information in Myanmar and how do you know that it is 180 cases? Yeah, so the most reliable sources of information for um, cases in Myanmar is the Ministry of Health and Sports website. They have a COVID-19 tracking page, um, and they're working with the WHO um, on that page um, as well. And so the WHO is also a source, a reliable source of information. But um, for anyone who wants to get accurate reporting on what's happening in Myanmar in terms of just cases and in terms of hospital response, those would be your best bets. 
Okay, so given Myanmar's very close geographical proximity to China, why do you think it did take Myanmar so long to close its borders after the pandemic broke out? Yeah, so that was, that's an interesting question because um, it's like the question about what does so long kind of mean, right? Because for a lot of countries, making that calculation about when you close your country has been a little bit of a stressful one. And I think the interesting thing with Myanmar is that since it um, shares the border, right, um, you would think, right, well, you know, why weren't things shut down sooner? But I think Myanmar also had the same challenge as a lot of other countries where they didn't quite know what was contained in Wuhan and what was pre prevalent in the rest of China, right? So there was an issue of kind of the news coming out of China at the time. But yeah, I mean, like many countries, public health response, of course, the question was, you know, should it have been done sooner? I think for Myanmar in a lot of cases, you know, probably. But there's the other challenge of the fact that Myanmar doesn't control all of its border with China. Um, there's uh, entire swaths like with Wa State, for example, where they have a border with China. It's not under control of the Myanmar government. So there are, you know, places where they couldn't implement something even if they wanted. Another factor also could have been economic. I mean, they the trade of the borders over of legally tracked goods is over 490 million USD a month. And it's definitely one of Myanmar's largest trading partners. So I think any kind of calculation around that just has such intense economic impacts that I'm sure it kind of slowed things down. The interesting thing, though, also, um, is that China is actually the one that's currently keeping the border closed with Myanmar. Um, as of April 1st, they um, as soon as Myanmar had cases in order to kind of prevent reinfection, um, they closed several parts, several of the major border crossings. I've heard that there's you know, uh, trade is starting to resume slowly, but I wasn't aware that China and Myanmar had a border that Myanmar wasn't controlling. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Yeah. So um, there are several contested areas of Myanmar and several areas of Myanmar that are just not under government control. Um, I'll just use Wa State again um, as an example. Um, so Wa State borders inside of Myanmar, but it borders China and it's got its own kind of autonomous government and control, um, even though it's it's part of Myanmar. Now, it's um, heavily funded by China in many ways. And so it makes it very difficult for the Myanmar government to assert any kind of uh, governance control in the country or in the Wa state. There's also a lot of conflict zones on the border with China as well. So there's a lot of ethnic armed groups. There's militia groups of various stripes that um, also run across the border. And so that means that um, if you were to try to implement something, it would be very challenging. And that goes for anything. Um, like, let's say that you wanted to do some sort of infrastructure project, right, in that area, it would probably require a lot of different people sign off. And that would probably include ethnic armed groups, maybe militia groups, maybe Myanmar government. Um, so it can be very, very convoluted and very much a gray area on the border as well. Is there any speculation that Myanmar's cases of COVID-19 came from across that border? So the first cases of COVID in Myanmar were detected from people coming back from the US and the UK. So that is also probably why less attention has been focused on the border and they immediately focused on the airport here in Yangon. Myanmar, one of them was a dual citizen, US Myanmar citizen, or Myanmar with a US citizenship who came back. And then the other one, yeah, was coming back from studies from the UK. And so there was this 
kind of stress around um, people coming in, particularly from those countries, particularly from Europe, because that's where the hotspot was at the time. Um, and a lot of energy went into kind of focusing on that. Coming back now to Myanmar's relationship with China, Myanmar is economically dependent on China in a number of ways. How are you seeing that dependence manifest in Myanmar's response to COVID-19? The China economic question, which is a reality for so many of our countries, but particularly for Myanmar because it is so close and it has such a long history with China. I would speculate that Myanmar doesn't feel comfortable having a very unilateral investment portfolio, FDI portfolio. I don't think anyone would want just one country to probably dominate you know, their trade because there's a lot of risks associated with that. And Myanmar has been there before, right? So before the, um, before the NLD came into power, I mean, there was very few countries that wanted to do business with Myanmar. China was one of the few. And so they know what it's like to kind of be beholden to China and China's economic power. So they're kind of finding themselves in that situation again, right? So after various human rights crises in the country, uh, a lot of foreign investment FDI is just kind of from the West has disappeared. Um, people aren't willing to invest in Myanmar. So what that means is that you see other investors come in China, you see a lot of Japanese investment, you know, Korea also maintains a strong, strong economic ties with Myanmar, um, but China being the most dominant. And so um, I don't think it's a particularly comfortable situation. I know that Myanmar is always trying to attract FDI um, and trying to get investment anywhere that it can, right? So um, one of the um, interesting things is we have an office in China as well. So um, it's really interesting hearing the perspective from our um, colleagues in Beijing, because um, a lot of this kind of BRI expansion and BRI into Myanmar, you know, I think as a Westerner, I feel like, oh my gosh, this is so insidious. It's kind of, it's a, it's an economic project that was started in China that is now kind of being modeled as we know in other countries. But what does BRI really mean? I mean, there's a lot of um, interesting investment that's happening. That's very controversial. Some of it's not controversial. We only hear about the controversial ones. Um, but once you start seeing the kind of breadth of Chinese investment in Myanmar, you go back and you say, wow, okay, China's taking on a lot of risk. And China is also taking on a lot of opportunities. It's <laughs> just Chinese investment is so vast. I mean, we're doing a um, our office here working with our China office is doing a deep dive research into w just one BRI project here in Myanmar. It, and it's just trying to figure out right, like the level just on this one small project kind of level of investment, which actors have kind of signed on to support this economic investment. I mean, I was talking before about all of these different like ethnic armed groups and actors and community, all of this buy in that kind of needs to happen for a project to happen. And, you know, China's had some tr some trouble with that here, right? They've, they've suggested very um, kind of controversial investments like the Mitzone Dam. I don't know if your listeners have kind of heard about that. Um, but it's a controversial dam project in one of the ethnic areas that has been protested left, right and center and has been put on pause. But it's kind of this this research to try to figure out a little bit more, because from the China side, you know, we do get a sense of the Chinese government's aid agency, SIDCA, trying to make better investments because they have many, many stalled projects around the world because they're deeply unpopular. They're deeply um, suspicious. People are deeply suspicious of, of the project. And 
Um, they're trying to launch a very nascent uh, kind of, um, like, let's just call it NGO um, sector for China and trying to get them to go abroad and also be the soft diplomacy face of kind of Chinese aid and Chinese goodwill. And uh, if I could just give a shout out to my colleagues, Anthea and Hongbo, because I know they did a dev policy blog on BRI. And I would just give um, a shout out to them because they've done an awesome analysis of kind of BRI projects in COVID-19 um, scenario planning. There's a lot going on. And we only know from our side who are trying to keep up with this, like just a very small amount of what's happening. I certainly agree with the importance of understanding this from the Chinese perspective as well. And we actually have your colleague Hongbo on the show in a couple of weeks. Coming back to the Chinese NGOs, though, is there a perception that the NGOs that are emerging in China are independent or are they simply viewed as extensions of government? So I think that they would like to see them. There's only one um, registered NGO, Chinese NGO here in Myanmar. Um, and it's the China Poverty Alleviation, I think, Funder Foundation. Please forgive me if I got that last one wrong. Um, but they just set up shop here, I think, um, about a year ago. And they, um, they do a lot of charitable work in China, right? Kind of like poverty alleviation. They look, they look at issues, um, a variety of issues within China. And then there was this kind of, um, and Hongbo can tell you more about this when you have her on the show, is kind of the going out policy from China, where they told kind of local civil society organizations, civil as much as civil society, I guess, has the freedom to exist, to um, go abroad and try to do some of those charitable actions in other countries. Now, the struggle for them, they've said, has really been around being recognized outside of China, even by the Chinese embassy. They're like, who are you guys? What are you doing here? And also fundraising, right? So there's no real kind of mechanism for supporting their work. You know, they have some private sector in support from Alibaba, for example, but it's just in kind of like materials, nothing financial, really. I think that if you are coming from China and you've joined an NGO and you're going abroad and you have this kind of perception that you're going to alleviate poverty in Myanmar, I don't really question the intent there. Um, it's just that they are so hamstrung by the fact that civil society doesn't really have this kind of expansive space in China or the kind of mechanisms for it to operate like how you and I would know. Do you think China is encouraging the development of NGOs as a way of softening some of their more controversial projects that you referred to earlier? Yeah, I do think that like any I would also say this maybe of my own country, the United States, I think definitely goes hand in hand, right? Foreign policy and um, diplomacy and the role of, of soft power is definitely there. I mean, I think that, you know, the motivation for the individual probably is very altruistic. And I think that, you know, for all of us who work in aid, we would probably prefer to not think of ourselves as pawns of government or foreign or of foreign policy. But I think we all are to some degree, right? Because that's the money that we take. And that's the kind of um, the kind of directives that we get from donors, right? So if we if we get we we have a very set, clear set of objectives when we take certain types of funding on, right? There's like, it's very out, it's very out there, right? If you take a grant from the Australian government or from the British government or US government, they're very clear to kind of tell you what their objectives are. And so, you know, I would reckon that probably, you know, if you're an NGO going 
going out, you would probably get some sort of similar guidelines um, in terms of if you take our money, please be sure to say X, Y, and Z, or please be sure to, you know, take um, these steps towards, you know, China's greater public facing persona. So before we move off the point of China, what do you expect to see for Chinese aid to Myanmar in the next 12 months? Do you expect it to slow down or do you expect it to accelerate? Dang. So I think that it may accelerate because of COVID-19, right? So like China has the, had the initial genome sequence for, you know, COVID-19. It has like the production capacity to create all sorts of PPE and masks. And they've already donated a bunch of stuff to Myanmar already. So I think when you're talking about soft power, I think this is like an important era for China to enter into. And again, like, I'd be super interested to hear what Hongo has to say about it on your show is just, you know, the fact that this is a new, it's kind of like pushed into being, and part of it also, because I have to say, maybe point back to my own country, the United States has really stepped back. But China's really, you know, it has a lot of the resources, a lot of actual physical material, and the experience now, after having gone what it's gone through, to provide support to other countries in the region. And I think it's a very clear kind of non con well, as non controversial as you can get for some of this stuff, kind of straightforward delivery of goods and services, right? I think you're going to probably see a bit more in terms of that sort of health care support. But I think you will probably see a ramping down of some of these BRI investment projects that were already controversial to begin with. And I think have like now the excuse or not excuse, but actual reality to have to put a pause on these because of COVID. Who knows, maybe that could be extended for a while. You know, maybe it could just quietly go into the shadows. So I think it'll be kind of up and down. It would be interesting to see China pivot from infrastructure spending on those major road and dam projects and towards health. On the point of health, Myanmar's healthcare system has been ranked by the World Health Organization as one of the worst in the world after decades of military rule. So let's talk about that. What has been your experience of Myanmar's healthcare system? Oh, yeah, it is definitely challenging. I mean, there are so many things that the healthcare system has to take on board here. I mean, besides COVID-19, right? I mean, we're right around the corner from dengue season. Um, You know, there's a pretty epic flu season, you know, and all of those things to say that, you know, the already fragile kind of health system, you know, the big fear is that how much pressure is that going to be put under? Already the it's only 180 cases, but the infectious disease hospital here in Yangon already has full beds. And so they're going, so now they've created a kind of special unit in one of the civil service colleges. Um, so they're, you know, trying to adapt and expand their capacity. But the Ministry of Health is very open about this. Like they're very clear um, at the INGO and WHO roundtable meetings with the Ministry of Health. One of the first things they said is that we don't have enough stuff. Like, can we make this conversation about how you guys help the Ministry of Health? They were, there was like no shame, no kind of like face saving stuff there because I think the Ministry of Health in particular just knew, I mean, they know their capacity and they know that they're going to be slammed. So, and big kudos to the WHO um, and to other uh, health focused agencies in Myanmar who helped the who helped the Ministry of Health create its protocols um, to um, help it create its um, COVID-19 plan. Um, and the Ministry of Health has been quite open for taking on this kind of health, this kind of support. But 
it's, it's not great. And there's so many rural areas, right? There's so many rural areas. I think like, you know, the hospital capacity and spread, especially in some remote parts of Northern Myanmar is very limited. And those are places that suffer a lot when it comes to kind of um, drug abuse um, challenges and also um, rates of HIV AIDS um, and stuff that they just normally deal with. So yeah, so there's a lot of concern, definitely. On the media and internet, we know that there has been a media and internet blackout in Myanmar. Has that made coordinating the response to COVID-19 difficult? Ugh, that internet blackout is just terrible. I mean, it It's just, yeah, that thing has been plaguing Myanmar for a very long time now. So um, just so your listeners know, so, um, and this is a great example of a private sector whistleblower. So um, about almost a year ago, no, nine months ago now, maybe there was an issue, there was Telenor, the Norwegian-based telecoms company, publicly noted that they had received an order from the Ministry of Information to shut down internet in northern Rakhine and southern Chin. And they said it was for security reasons. So um, I know that Telenor did its best to try to kind of push back on this order and made it very public to say, hey, you know, we've received this. Um, We don't even know if it's legal. You know, the internet providers did in the end have to shut down their towers. Um, I think they were forced to. And then what you've seen is a internet blackout that has been absolutely, I think, just terrible for anything relating to reporting in the region, for anyone trying to get in touch with family members, just a complete isolation and cutoff. And when the public health crisis happens, yeah, communication is key. Sharing of information is key. Being able to get in touch if there's an emergency is key. On top of that, for a vulnerable population that is facing, that is squashed between the Arakan army and the Tatmadaw. So to the news agency's credit here, they bring it up all the time. You know, they're like internet blackout, reminding people that it's there. Um, they've restrict, they've eased the restriction a little bit after um, a WHO driver was killed. He was caught in the cross. Well, who knows? The Arakan army and the Tatmadaw have both denied culpability for the killing. But um, the internet restrictions have been eased as they've kind of gone in, um, as the WHO Ministry of Health have gone in to try to kind of, you know, figure out what's been going on. So, yeah, but it's it's terrible. I remember from my time in Myanmar that Telenor was by far the most reliable mobile service provider. It is an interesting example of a private sector whistleblower. How did the Ministry of Information respond when Telenor made that announcement? They said that it was necessary for that it was necessary for security. You know, they had there was a variety of things that came out. Right. And of course, you know, uh, the military got involved in the communications on this, saying that, you know, the Arakan army had been kind of using the Internet. I mean, the Arakan army is a very kind of prolific, uh, has a prolific kind of online media presence. And so, you know, they wanted to kind of cut down on that kind of outreach. They also were saying that they were using it to, you know, monitor the Tabadaw's movements, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's just a variety of things. But I have to say, though, that in Myanmar, there's such a slew of colonial era laws that can be used and weaponized in these kinds of situations that you can manipulate any one of those to kind of justify, I think, your your actions. Yeah, I think they have kind of plenty of legal loopholes to try to get through. Unfortunately, we're seeing media freedoms being curtailed in many geographies in response to COVID-19. Are civil society groups in Myanmar advocating against the government and trying to advocate for more media freedoms? So I think civil society space has 
in some places it's kind of been a little bit more constrained and in some places you see some kind of interesting openings like first of all just big shout out to all of the advocacy and civil society organizations here that are like just putting themselves at risk every single day by the work that they do and those are the people who speak out against injustice when it relates to the government there's people who are fighting for journalists and for media freedom i think you know there's some very famous examples from myanmar um and just yeah there are lots of people who are just not satisfied with the level of transparency of the government um and they're putting themselves in tremendous risk at tremendous risk every single time right lots of jailings lots of repercussions but one thing that i that is interesting is um i think civil society in myanmar has generally kind of been seen as maybe charitable organizations that like give out food and donations and there's a lot of it that's tied to um kind of um the culture here and so civil society has taken on lots of different forms here if you think if you were to poll the country they would be like oh it's you know people who do the uh ambulance service or you know healthcare kind of uh, volunteers um but i think that that notion of what civil society is is kind of expanding quite a bit and i think you've seen it expand a lot in recent years there's been a lot more i think kind of um constraints probably put on some of them who are quite strong advocates for this transparency but there's other areas where they've grown quite a bit and they didn't have space before like LGBTI or uh, organizations here have really blossomed and this is kind of a movement that I think has taken off that you didn't see a few years back right so it's kind of like yeah it's getting squeezed in some areas but in some areas it's kind of flourishing without much without the level of negative attention maybe they had seen before to close then what are ngos like the asia foundation doing in response to covid-19 in myanmar so there are so many cool local organizations that are doing stuff like there's some yangon based ones that are just like mobilizing like crazy and using facebook um there's been a lot of mobilization for um groups in the city to especially because of the economic squeeze of the fact that Yangon ha- is kind of in a semi lockdown situation where they have really been going to communities and making sure that they have kind of resources food just really kind of like grassroots work a lot of ingos like ourselves have really had to um pivot th- th- for those of us who are not working in the healthcare area the healthcare ngos like took off running who took off running like they they know what they're doing for some of us who work in kind of areas like good governance for example what does covid-19 mean for us and so um for asia foundation where we work on subnational governance and helping in myanmar's democratic transition we had to do a little bit of soul searching to kind of figure out like what's the most effective thing that we can do and so um we have been working um on trying to get our subnational governance project uh and our public financial management project i know p- public financial management very sexy um on how do we help states and regions better respond to covid right because like any good response involves good governance and so working with uh ministry of planning and finance and with uh state and region governments to try to um help them in terms of you know budget allocations for covid response what's going to happen you know now that kind of the economy has been kind of slowed down for a little while um what happens when you don't get your kind of budget request from the union government how do you pivot from that and kind of the nuts and bolts like 
again, probably like the kind of like unsexy, but very functional kind of aspects of um, government budget allocation, because there's a lot of people at the state region governments who are trying to figure out what do they do with the resources that they have, right? And a lot of that can be kind of looked at through planning lens. Um, that's the phase where we're at now. And, you know, the government, sub subnational government is really open and responsive because they are also freaked out by the fact that like they have so many challenges on their plate right now, you know, they there's an election that's happening in November. You know, there was a lot of stuff in the pipeline that was going on and then on top, you know, trying to plan for this has been pretty stressful. Great. Thanks for chatting to me, Diana. That was Diana Fernandez from the Asia Foundation in Myanmar. Next, I chat to Faisal bin Siraj from the Asia Foundation in Bangladesh. Faisal, thanks for speaking with me. You've been working in international development for a long time. Have you ever seen anything to the magnitude of COVID-19 before? No, I have not actually, uh, not even anything remotely. uh, uh, So see, the way we work and uh, think in the development sector uh, can be described as uh, very compartmentalized at times. Talking about a typical uh, development organization in Bangladesh, I don't think uh, any of us have been mentally prepared for a situation where an uh, wait and observe approach will be considered more prudent uh, than just, you know, the traditional jump in and help approach. Uh, the fundamental work hypothesis uh, for organizations uh, working in Bangladesh is to mobilize financial and human resources as quickly as possible and direct them to a specific geographical location, right? But if you look at the COVID-19 situation, uh, especially in the earlier stage, uh, it demanded a completely different mode of action. Uh, that is, don't move, don't go door to door, uh, don't be in physical contact uh, with another person. So this is a massive uh, mental model shifting uh, for these organizations, right? Who, who, by the way, has been uh, successful in dealing with any crisis in Bangladesh by just moving and mobilizing people. Secondly, the COVID-19 situation also exposed a few weaknesses in our uh, coordination uh, between humanitarian organizations service-oriented development organizations, and also the government in general. Uh, But if you look at uh, Bangladesh disaster preparedness in general for non-COVID type of uh, events, it is very different. Um, So over the years, we have almost made it to a perfection. So everyone knows how to synchronize and time their intervention. That is for non-COVID-19 related uh, events, right? Uh, but so for COVID-19, uh, the sequencing that was required and is required in terms of interventions uh, is missing. Uh, but I guess as we move on, it is uh, it is slowly getting better now. Why do you think Bangladesh has been particularly susceptible to new cases of COVID-19 compared to other countries in a similar situation? Uh, there are several reasons, of course. Uh, uh, most obvious culprit is, of course, the population factor. Uh, Bangladesh, geographically, you may know uh, that is a very small country with a population of more than 160 million people. Uh, the sheer density of population and the small size makes it very easy for a virus like uh, uh, COVID uh, to spread very quickly within the country. Uh, secondly, Bangladesh also has a huge migrant community, uh, and particularly in countries like Italy, for example. Uh, which is which has also been uh, badly affected by COVID-19. And then to make things worse, we also have millions of people living under poverty, right? 
for these people staying out of work for even a day is luxury. And yet we are talking about being locked down for months. So a massive population in general, a huge migrant community, and a massive number of economically poor people obviously makes it difficult for the government to contain the virus. Uh, so for Bangladesh, it is like a double-edged sword uh, where to contain the virus, we need to have absolute lockdown in place. Uh, but complete lockdown also means worsening poverty and hunger situation. And are you already seeing a worsening of poverty and a loss of livelihoods? Yes, of course. Like um, So, you know, like uh, uh, the garment, sec- garment sector, I think we're going to talk about that a bit more details uh, later. But also, if you look at agriculture sector and uh, all the sectors where you need day laborers, right? And because of them being locked down inside, uh, and these people also do not have much of a savings to start with. So their whole uh, way of operating is to earn daily and live on a daily wage. So with the lockdown, lockdown, it heavily, heavily hurts them. Obviously, any death is a tragedy, but compared to other countries, there have been relatively low levels of deaths from COVID-19 in Bangladesh, Myanmar, and and other neighbouring countries. Why do you think that is? To be honest, uh, we don't actually know for sure yet. Perhaps it is because of our demographic advantage of having a very young population uh, with median age of around 27. Now, if you compare that with some of the worst affected countries, almost all of them have a median age that is over 40. Uh, But then again, without data and evidence, uh, it is difficult to draw any conclusion. Uh, There are also some some assumptions that maybe the virus is weakening uh, by now, uh, especially in this region. A lot of low-cost testing kits are being rolled out in Bangladesh, and there are some concerns about their reliability. Do you have concerns about the reliability of those testing kits? And in your view, how widespread has testing been? Fortunately, uh, in past few weeks, there has been a significant rise in the number of uh, tests in Bangladesh. Uh, Though the number of testing facilities increased and uh, has been spread uh, around the country, it is still well below what is uh, required to contain the spread of the virus. There are, of course, mixed opinions, uh, as it is common with almost any issue in Bangladesh. Uh, you might be aware of that. But in general, I think their reliability has, mon- has not been questioned to the level uh, of their validity to be used. Uh, just to add, while reliability is an important factor, uh, it is also important that the kits are rolled out as widely as possible and as fast as possible. Yes, but there's really no good in rolling out faulty testing kits, is there? Like, it's imperative to establish that those tests work before you start distributing them across the country. Yeah, and I'm not confronting your uh, concern about, like, the reliability of the kits, but I don't think uh, the reliability has been questioned at that level yet, where you can uh, outright say that, like, okay, uh, this is the time you stop with this case and introduce new kids. Uh, but some of, because some of these kids are also coming from uh, very reliable sources, right? Uh, uh, so, so I don't think we are in that stage yet, but that is a concern, of course, and uh, we will be keeping a very close eye on that and whatever the report comes in. 
Now, we know that around 900,000 people are confined to refugee camps in Cox's Bazaar. Most of those people are Rohingya refugees. At the time of recording today, what is the latest on COVID-19 in the refugee camps? Well, uh, actually, we recently carried out a survey of the Rohingya community in Bangladesh. But unfortunately, the survey was carried out. uh, Our survey was carried out just before COVID-19 lockdown. For us, it will be very useful to do a post-COVID survey to find out the impact of the pandemic. So in terms of data, we are in a good position to do a post, uh, post-COVID analysis and compare. Uh, now, going back to the refugee camp, it itself is about the size of uh, 26 square kilometers. And recently, uh, and currently holds close to 90, uh, 900,000 Rohingyas, right? There is a communal distribution of water and food, uh, making it a long wait for the Rohingyas to have access to their basic needs. So given their health and overall nutrition level, uh, it is obvious that they're highly vulnerable to an infectious disease like COVID-19. According to MSF, uh, 30% of patients treated by uh, them in recent uh, weeks presented symptoms that are related to respiratory system. However, uh, please note that there has been 80% reduction in the number of aid workers visiting the camp. This obviously puts them in greater risk of not only COVID, but also other diseases. Those are two important statistics, an 80% reduction in aid workers and 30% of people surveyed by MSF reporting respiratory symptoms. We have to question whether some of that 30% might have COVID-19. There are reports that internet access has been limited or that there is a complete internet blackout in parts of Cox's Bazaar. How does the restriction on internet affect aid workers' ability to, to do their jobs? That is a very good question. Uh, in fact, uh, the importance of allowing the Rohingya refugees to use uh, mobile internet has also been highlighted in our recent survey report. Uh, that is before uh, COVID-19, by the way, right? Uh, we learned that there has been a dramatic reduction in the number of humanitarian workers in the Rohingya camp, as mentioned earlier. Uh, since the Rohingyas are also not allowed to run information campaigns uh, on their own, internet connections then becomes a very important tool for awareness building, right? Uh, it is also important that they have access to a phone for emergency calls. And also, according to our uh, report, most of the Rohingya community members use their phones to be connected to the wider diaspora, uh, which essentially allows them uh, not only financially in terms of remittance, uh, but it also helps them with mental support in this stressful time. So uh, taking the mobile phone away uh, itself is a one uh, big element that can hamper their cause a lot. So I think uh, in our report, we have also suggested that uh, these internet blocks in the in the campaign should be removed. The freedom of the media in Bangladesh has also been restricted with a number of arrests in recent months under the Digital Security Act. I understand this is partly an attempt to control the spread of misinformation, but where do you draw the line between controlling misinformation and promoting press freedoms? So uh, let me answer that from... Um, from the viewpoint of uh, the civil society organizations that we are working with and also the active citizenship that we are promoting. We are settling down into this so-called new normal. Uh, we are also shifting our focus more and more on secondary 
impact of COVID-19. So with the emergency uh, situation is gradually leading into the secondary impact of COVID-19, uh, it will definitely bring uh, the issue of freedom of speech uh, in the forefront. Uh, I think in general, and as a citizen, as media, we should be allowed to ask questions like whether the right amount of support is going to the right number of people or not. Uh, we, we should be allowed to ask questions like, can we draw a line between rumors and freedom of speech? Uh, is the use of Digital Security Act is in proportion when arresting bloggers and journalists, right? So these are these are the questions that active citizens should and will ask. But I think uh, what is also happening is that there is an understanding uh, the exact current situation is uh, more complex and the government is trying to solve this complexity. And perhaps this is the time to be united rather than to be divided. But sooner or later, we need to reflect and ask some hard questions and we need we will we will need answers. Uh, so the concern is that if for one or other reasons the journalist's work is shrinking, uh, then the radical voices will be more active and uh, misinformation will spread even faster, especially in the in the social media, uh, in the absence of traditional journalists and media. You did mention garment workers earlier. We know that around one million garment workers in Bangladesh have been laid off despite factories being allowed to stay open. What will happen to those garment workers? It is uh, it is actually very difficult to predict uh, uh, from where we are standing right now. Uh, it is a very fluid situation uh, with a lot of moving parts. Uh, the good news is that there is a huge government stimulus package in offer right now. Uh, and I think uh, we need to be in dialogue and have our focus on the government and to create dialogues to make sure that these packages reach to the people who are in need. So in terms of garment sectors, perhaps a better use of the package will be to first help the unemployed workers uh, to get through this difficult time. Because uh, when the COVID-19 situation is over uh, and with good negotiation and good persuasion from the very high level of the government, maybe we will have our uh, garments uh, factories up and running again with the rising demand uh, in the global economy. Does the government stimulus package include specific provisions for garment workers? Yes, it does. So it, it does include salaries uh, for a couple of months, I think. Um, it also includes a um, uh, loan for the garment owners to uh, go through this difficult time. Uh, but uh, my argument and uh, many of us are arguing that how do you ensure that this money is actually being um, received by the uh, garments workers? What are the mechanisms here in there? Uh, but in principle, the stimulus very specifically and very attractively uh, uh, attractively does the job of making sure that the garment sector uh, revives once the COVID-19 situation is over. How do you think Bangladesh's long-term economic development will be affected by COVID-19? So we have, we do have quite a lot of um, analysis going on right now. But since the world market is a very complex uh, situation, so a uh, couple of big foreign, sea, foreign currency earners for us is uh, the biggest foreign currency is coming from garments. But the people often forget also about the remittance. 
the foreign migrant workers uh, that arms that is almost the backbone the pillar of the country when everything everything else fails this group of people have been uh, uh, instrumental uh, for our economy to have that cushion in difficult times uh garments we talked about already with the stimulus package and uh, there are some really uh well uh versed people uh, involved in the uh, in the garment situation so i'm 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 less worried about garments in that sense relatively speaking i'm more worried about the remittance earners so uh if the covid-19 situation deteriorates uh or if the if bangladesh doesn't become virus free very soon that also means travel restriction for this uh, remittance earners right they will most probably not be able to leave the country so that is that is a much more bigger concern i think it's less talked about in bangladesh and it's time that we focus on how we also uh create jobs in country with the rising domestic demand for some products or maybe um maybe engaging them temporarily in other sectors okay so to close what's the long term plan for recovery for bangladesh uh in the very short run i think the immediate need is to have testing and health facilities widely available across the country uh, at the same time we need to have technology merging with human efforts uh to better identify the people who need support uh in fact bangladesh came a long way in terms of uh, digitization and it is time we take some ambitious projects in hand uh contact tracing for example will be very useful uh to isolate affected people without uh, interrupting the economy uh we also realize the difficulty of identifying the most vulnerable people to direct food and cash aid so technology can again help us better target and assist the community members in need so this is this is in the very short run that needs to happen to open up the economy and uh, do have a have have some gain on the debate of life versus livelihood uh moving on to short to medium term goals and especially looking into the secondary co- impact of covid-19 uh number one we need to fight misinformation uh number 2 we need to ensure that the social media is not being exploited by the radicals to recruit vulnerable youth who are right now most probably unemployed in many parts of the country uh number 3 we need to fight stigma uh that will further isolate vulnerable group of people and all these three uh, three short to medium goals can be achieved better if we can create an enabling environment for civil societies journalists and media uh by assuring their safety and security and lastly for the medium to long term long long term economic recovery i think we need to be prepared for the worst and assume that the covid-19 is here to stay for a long time uh this change in mindset will help us to find out uh, the sweet spot uh, between life and livelihood uh in bangladesh we can see a gradual reduction uh, of lockdown for essential services and certain economic activities uh in this adversity perhaps there is an opportunity to shape the future of our work uh maybe we need to promote geek economy maybe we need to um uh, have a, a have the option of people working from home even more and so that they can they do not have to um, go out and risk their own lives and others 
perhaps we need to have again the antibody uh, test done very very quickly so that we can release some people and we can contain some people and take care of them uh, but the long term economy the future of work uh, goes beyond actually the humanitarian community towards the development community uh, which i think is a much more uh, bigger discussion and i'm not sure right now we have enough data or information to basically uh, solidly say that these are the things that we need to do uh, for the long term uh, long term mitigation of covid-19 great thanks faisal for your time that's it for episode 78 of goodwill hunters from the development policy center as always there's links in our show notes to relevant articles i'm your host rachel mason nun see you next week